Hello, welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast for the Lancet of Diabetes and Endocrinology. It's our August 2021 issue, and I'm Gavin Cleaver. In our issue this month, we have an article on an outcome of the Rewind trial, which used dulaglutide for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. This particular aspect of the trial looked at the effect of dulaglutide on erectile dysfunction in men with type 2 diabetes, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by one of the authors, Professor Herzl Gerstein, who is a professor of medicine at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Professor Gerstein, thanks so much for, for speaking with the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology today. We're talking about your new paper, which is about diabetes as a risk factor for erectile dysfunction and the treatment of dulaglutide uh, for that condition. Let's start by talking a little bit about why diabetes is a major risk factor for erectile dysfunction. What are some of the current treatments? Yeah, thanks very much um, for inviting me to be on this. So as you know, diabetes is very common. And by the way, we are talking about type 2 diabetes for this whole discussion, um, which is the most common type of diabetes, which which, uh, really affects 90% of people with uh, with diabetes is type 2 diabetes. And it's common affecting 1 in 10 adults and and about 1 in 5 people uh, over the age of 70 have uh, type 2 diabetes. So it is very common and it is also a common uh, risk factor for an important risk factor for major serious health problems down the line. So we know that people with diabetes have a double the risk of cardiovascular outcomes, such as heart attacks and strokes. They have very high risk of kidney disease and eye disease and a host of other problems that uh, can be kind of classified as uh, problems that affect um, blood vessels and specifically small vessels throughout the body, as well as large vessels throughout the body. So you can think of diabetes as both common and as a predisposing factor for a lot of future uh, health consequences and poor health problems. One of those uh, health consequences is erectile dysfunction. And um, uh, it's um, uh, a common problem in men as they get older, but in people with diabetes, it's about two or three times more common uh, than it is in people without diabetes with age. So uh, we know it's it's common and, uh, uh, and obviously we, we are um, uh, always trying to identify good ways to treat that. And what are some of the current treatments? So um, there are no um, uh, treatments that are uh, traditionally uh, used for erectile dysfunction that are specific to diabetes. Um, You know, erectile dysfunction has been a problem for a long time, but we didn't talk about it a lot in medicine uh, until about 15 years ago when we started to have, well, actually, until we actually understood how common it was. So, uh, and that was because of some surveys that were done assessing that this is a common condition. More than 60% of people with diabetes, for instance, uh, do have some erectile dysfunction. Understandably, not always something that people were particularly forthcoming about. Yeah, you're totally right. And, and, and unless a physician explicitly asks a patient, they will tend to not discuss it. So, so you have to actually ask the patient. Very, a lot of patients do not volunteer this as a problem. And, and, they, and there's often too many other big discussions happening at clinic visits for this to be raised uh, as a problem. And so that's on an individual patient level, but even on a population level, um, there were no great tools to assess this until, interestingly enough, various instruments were developed about 15 years ago, just before 
the first therapies became available. So, um, and these are essentially questionnaire instruments. So if I wanted to know if a man had erectile dysfunction, I could you know, ask them about it in my clinic, et cetera. But if I wanna do this in a population basis, there are standardized questionnaires. One of them, which is the, a common one, is the International Index of Erectile Function. But these are questionnaires that are standardized. They're translated into many languages. The patients can, can take these and they get a score. And uh, that score, we know, um, correlates with erectile function. So the, the lower the score, the more the erectile dysfunction that there is. So with the advent of um, these questionnaires, we've been able to get a better handle on it. And these, these first standardized questionnaires really came out uh, just before the first uh, famous erectile function uh, uh, treatment uh, was introduced, which uh, uh, is uh, sildenafil or marketed as Viagra, which uh, obviously got a lot of press at the time, et cetera. And um, those studies showed that drugs like that, uh, one was sildenafil, another one is tadalafil, which is Cialis, improved erectile function scores. And, that's, and, that's, uh, and that treatment works in people without diabetes, it works in people with diabetes, but a fewer, a smaller percentage of people with diabetes respond to traditional therapies uh, for erectile function than people without diabetes. Um, so th that's the, the common therapy that's available. There are uh, no other really established therapies for erectile uh, dysfunction, um, uh, other than things like good health, uh, general well-being, uh, sometimes weight loss improves a little bit, um, uh, but uh, these are all non-specific ty types of therapies. That's interesting to get a diabetes-specific one. Yeah, well, and from a diabetes perspective, you know, various drugs that are used to treat diabetes um, have been assessed to see whether or not they have an effect on erectile function. And there hasn't been any clear answer. I mean, uh, there is some evidence in type one diabetes, which is uh, occurs at a younger age and, and affects a smaller proportion of people that tight blood sugar control may, may have a benefit and reducing it from happening. And there's been some small studies with uh, drugs such as metformin, which is a commonly used drug in type 2 diabetes that um, suggests maybe there's, there's a possible effect there. But I think for, for the listeners, it's important to make an important distinction. And the distinction is between a treatment for somebody who has erectile dysfunction versus a therapy that might help reduce the occurrence of erectile dysfunction in the future. And those are two very different things. And understandably, most patients are uh, just by human nature are more interested in what can you do for me today? In other words, I have this problem. Can you make it better doc? Uh, as opposed to, uh, can you give me something that's gonna be, that's gonna prevent the problem in the future? And the only real therapy that is, I have a problem, can you make it better, doc, is really the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which are, as I said, drugs like sildenafil and tadalafil. And, and, and you know, uh, those are the ones that, and that's why they got such big you know, press um, uh, yeah. at the time. And the, but the therapies that, that I've mentioned earlier on, such as you know, general health, good control of sugar, et cetera, those are drug therapies that might reduce the incidence or the probability of 
the problem occurring with time. And that is what we looked at in this particular study that uh, uh, you were referencing. Yeah, so this particular study, which, uh, as we, as I mentioned, looks at uh, dulaglutide as a type 2 diabetes-specific treatment for erectile dysfunction, is a kind of... It, it, it was part of the the rewind trial, which was a major trial, and it wasn't one of the primary outcomes. So tell us a little bit about the rewind trial and what some of the primary outcomes were, what it was looking for, and I guess how your research came about from that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so the rewind trial uh, was a a large uh, trial of um, close to ten thousand people um, who either did or did not have previous uh, heart disease and. Uh, were middle-aged and um, were at risk for having future heart attacks and because they had either a previous one or they had risk factors for, for that. So the Rewind trial was this big study which recruited these 10,000 people, lasted five and a half years, and was really designed to determine whether or not a drug that is available now to treat diabetes, and the drug is called dulaglutide, whether people who take that drug have a lower likelihood of, of, of experiencing a heart attack or stroke or cardiovascular death, a death from a heart attack or stroke during over time while they're taking it. So really, this was a trial that was assessing whether dulaglutide can be used to uh, both uh, prevent future heart attacks and strokes while at the same time lowering blood sugar, lowering um, uh, and having its other effects, which includes some weight loss and lowering of blood pressure as well. You know, just to say that again, we have a commonly, we, we have a drug out there which is used to treat diabetes because it improves glucose levels. And really the rewind trial saying, does it also reduce heart attack strokes and things of that nature? So um, this trial started around 2012 or 2013. I can't remember the exact date at this time. At the time that we were designing it, we said, well, we're designing this trial to see what its effect is on you know, heart attack, strokes, and death, but let's take the opportunity to see whether or not th uh, this drug might affect other things that are important to people with diabetes. So in addition to measuring the things that the trial was specifically designed to measure, such as which are the cardiovascular outcomes I mentioned, we also included um, a number of questionnaires or uh, instruments to measure things in the participants as the trial progressed. For instance, we added a measure of cognitive status of, uh, of you know, people's um, ability to do executive function, thinking that type of things. And that was measured at various times during the trial. And uh, we also measured kidney function during the trial to assess the effect of the drug and kidney function, but with blood tests. And uh, we also decided that, you know what, we're doing this big trial, we're spending lots of time and a huge investment of effort to, to assess these people with diabetes. Let's also, in the men, assess erectile function. So we included uh, uh, this questionnaire, the International Index of Erectile Function, and we administered it to the men who consented to take it. Not all the men wanted to do this, but to the men who consented to fill it out at, at the first visit, at two years after they were 
uh, included in the study and about five years afterwards and then subsequently as well if, if they were in the study for longer than that. So um, it was a, uh, an opportunistic measurement to measure more than what the trial was designed to do, uh, because you can imagine, you know, you're, 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 you do, it's a huge undertaking to do this type of research and you want to leverage it as much as possible to learn as much about people with diabetes. So that is what the rewind trial was. Uh, and that's how we measured erectile function. Now, the Rewind trial results, the major results were published several years ago in 2019 in The um, Lancet and showed that uh, the people who got this drug, dulaglutide, and this, by the way, is an injectable drug. It's, a, um, it's injected once a week. So the people who took the weekly injection of this drug, dulaglutide, had a lower uh, likelihood of either a heart attack or a stroke or a death from cardiovascular causes than the people who gave themselves a weekly injection of placebo. People didn't know whether they were getting themselves placebo or the active drug, but at the end of the study, we were able to, to, to crack the code and find out. So um, that was exciting. And, uh, um, and then we, we, we started to look at other, other aspects. So uh, the trial also showed that people had a lower uh, development of kidney disease over time. So that was exciting too. And that was also published in the Lancet. And uh, when we scrutinized the data, it was uh, interesting that the effect on cardiovascular disease seemed to also maybe be a slightly bigger effect on strokes. Um, and so we said, well, let's you know, analyze the data we had done for cognition, you know, and, and there was evidence that actually there, that dulaglutide seemed to reduce worsening cognition over time, a very modest effect that obviously needs to be verified in other studies, but that was exciting. And then we said, well, now let's look what happens to erectile function, you know, in the men. So pretty positive throughout, but that of course brings us to the big question, at least for this podcast, uh, what was the effect of dulaglutide? Yeah, so um, uh, so we, we use the score um, which people administered and of the uh, 5,000 or so men in the trial, about 70% did agree to complete the questionnaire on at least two occasions at baseline and at some point uh, during follow-up. So that's where these data are based on about 3,700 men in this trial. And what uh, it showed is that in this group of men, uh, people who were randomly assigned to this drug dulaglutide did report a uh, lower, about an 8%, 8 or 9% lower risk of developing erectile dysfunction, a severe, moderate or severe erectile dysfunction during the five-year follow-up period compared to men who got the placebo. So it's not a huge effect, um, but when you look at it, together with the context of the, all the other things that we've seen with uh, this drug in this trial, it's consistent with that. And it shows that, yeah, there is a, a benefit on reducing the incidence or reducing the likelihood of erectile function. And so that's interesting for erectile function, but it's also interesting for, say, for stepping back and saying that this drug and the therapeutic strategy that this drug represents really seems to be doing a lot of things that are good for people with diabetes. And maybe uh, um, Gavin, I should back up a little bit and just tell people what, what the drug actually does, you know, biologically. So the drug is called dulaglutide and it is a, a member of a family of drugs that are uh, called collectively glucagon-like peptide 
one receptor agonists. And these essentially are proteins and they are very similar to proteins that we all make naturally, humans make called GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide one. And this is a protein that is made from, it's a protein, which is a hormone. A protein is a structural property of a hormone. And we all have these hormones in our body. This is a hormone made from the gut when we eat food. And when we eat food, our body makes uh, this hormone GLP-1 and it um, works to reduce appetite in the brain and to uh, increase secretion of insulin from our pancreas. That's why it's been using to treat diabetes and that's why it can cause some weight loss as well. And now with this trial and other trials like it, we now know that this particular hormone also reduces vascular disease. It reduces blood vessel disease. That's why there's less heart attacks and strokes. And that's why we think there might be some less incident erectile dysfunction and perhaps the cognitive effect as well. So uh, it's kind of like the, a side effect of a drug that was originally developed to treat diabetes. And we're learning more about this all the time. So across the board, a bit of a success story, really. In terms of looking at this particular paper, what, what are some of the limitations of the findings, do you think, that it's important to bear in mind? Well, this is not uh, a finding that we would say, aha, now go take this drug to prevent erectile function. So that is not what we would ever say with this finding, because as I said, you know, this drug did not improve people who already had erectile dysfunction and make it better. Um, so we did not see this in this trial, but we saw less progression over time. So, you know, um, and a lot of preventive therapies that we use in medicine, what they kind of do is they change the trajectory of the disease. So, you know, if the trajectory of the disease is going to be worsening and worsening, this makes it a shallower, you know, uh, worsening. It actually, you know, reduces the chance of of deterioration over the time, which is, which is good. You wouldn't just take it for erectile function for sure, but you say, well, if you're taking it for diabetes, et cetera, there seems to be some other benefits that are worthwhile thinking about. Obviously, other studies would have to be done to replicate this, but it's certainly encouraging, you know, and, and it says, well, that, that's really interesting. The, the, that is the major limitation. You know, obvi- the other limitation is the study was not designed to assess this question. You know, we didn't recruit people who are willing to complete the questionnaire every time, which is why only 70% of the men agreed to do it. One could say, well, maybe the people who didn't complete the questionnaire would have had very different effects if they'd actually completed it. So, That always happens with research, but it is a limitation and you can only measure what you can measure. Um, And so I would I would interpret this as cautiously optimistic, saying, well, this is more evidence that uh, this drug and drugs like it because dulaglutide is not the only representative of GLP-1 receptor agonists that we have out there to treat diabetes. But I would interpret this as saying this drug and drugs like it do seem to be good for diabetes. They actually also cause some weight loss, which is great. They lower blood pressure, which is great. They reduce cardiovascular events, great. They may have a benefit on the brain. And there are actually other studies going on now with drugs like it to see what the effect is in dementia even. Um, And now saying, well, maybe there's also a, a, a benefit on erectile function. And because what's happening in men in the uh, in the genital area with respect to erectile function relates to small vessel disease as um, as well as some large vessel disease and uh, possibly nerve disease all things which are damaged by diabetes um, it um, makes us um, reassured that uh, this is yet another salutary effect 
of the GLP-1 receptor agonists and um, provides a lot of excitement and encouraging for uh, clinicians and researchers to explore yet other effects of this drug at both the doses that were tested and at higher doses as well, or drugs like it. Right. So it's kind of important to bear in mind what a broad solution it is and how this kind of this outcome is kind of a, an offshoot or, or, you know, just what one mechanism of, of a broader solution. Research uh, this never goes in a straight line. And um, uh, you want to when you are doing research, asking one question, you want to try to get as much insight into as many related questions as possible and uh, good research. The best research is one that answers one or two questions and then raises 10 more. And so that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing the results of research that answered some good questions and now is raising other questions. Well, what about erectile function? You know, what about cognitive function? What about, you know, higher doses? What about other things? And I can tell you that there are several companies that are doing um, all sorts of research programs with this drug, but or drugs like it. Uh, and so the GLP-1 receptor agonist class of drugs, and, and even drugs that have GLP-1 effects, as well as other hormonal effects that are related. So this is an exciting area and um, uh, is really helping to revolutionize diabetes care and management. Well, that brings me flawlessly onto my final question, which uh, I was just going to ask broadly what you hope to see in the future of type 2 diabetes research in the, going forward. Diabetes research has has been one of the most exciting areas of research to be in in the last 30 years. I I spent my whole career as a diabetes researcher, and my interest has always been in the not diabetes so much, but the interface between diabetes and other things, diabetes and heart disease, diabetes and stroke, diabetes and kidney, diabetes and and, and cognitive effects, etc. And we know that diabetes is a serious problem that increases the risk of many things. And we didn't have lots of ways to intervene 20 years ago, but because of good research and because of volunteers, tens of thousands, in fact, there's been, you know, a quarter of a million, uh, yeah, about 250,000 volunteers over the last, you know, 20 years, 20, 30 years in, in a whole bunch of different diabetes trials. Uh, more than 30 diabetes trials of a whole slew of drugs that have now turned diabetes from a a disease where when I started uh, practicing, when I finished medical school in the the last century, we had insulin and one or two pill types to treat diabetes. Now there's 12 different therapeutic approaches to treating diabetes, of which two of the broad classes not only lower glucose levels and and help to um, prevent the, the acute problems of diabetes, but also reduce heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, kidney disease. And one of them is this GLP-1 receptor agonist class. There are actually now, these drugs are both being tested in people without diabetes, um, uh, uh, some of the diabetes drugs to see if they have benefits as well. And there are new drugs that are related to this that are further building on uh, the cardioprotective, the uh, effects of this class of drugs. And so we have been, if you're unfortunate to have diabetes, uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that every year or two, there are better and more therapies. And really the outlook for somebody with type two diabetes today is uh, a whole order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, much rosier and much better than it was when I started practicing endocrinology in the last century. Um, And so 
uh, it's been a really exciting ride, and I'm uh, enthusiastic to see even more exciting things in the next you know, five, ten years. Well, Herzl, it's a pleasure to chat with someone uh, so passionate about their research, and I, I've really enjoyed talking with you, and thanks very much for, for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of In Conversation with a podcast for the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. You can catch up with all of our previous episodes by subscribing wherever you usually get your podcasts. Just search for In Conversation with the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. And we'll see you again soon for another conversation.